2 Samuel chapter 14. There are four main characters in today's passage. If you have been here in recent weeks and months, you know three of these four characters. If you haven't been here, or you're like me, and you need reminders and helps uh, to rekindle your memory, I want to begin today, before we get to the text of Scripture, to summarize who these four individuals are. We have first Absalom. He is uh, David's son. He is the heir to the throne of the king of Israel. He has committed murder, and so he has fled to Geshur. It says in chapter 13, verse 38, after he fled, he went to Geshur, and he stayed there three years. He's been away from his family, from his father, uh, for at least three years. In that culture, murder, premeditated murder, what he did is punishable by death. This is why he has fled. Absalom is one of the main characters in this chapter. Second, we have Joab. He is the king's tactician. He's his military general, but he's more than that. He's like his chief of staff. He happens to also be his nephew. In many ways, at this point in Israel's history, Joab is running things. Now, this might be a stretch for your imagination, but imagine a leader of a nation who is very old, who is perhaps not able to jet around the world. He needs qualified people to do his work for him. Important work. King David is in such a situation. He is not doing the work that he should be doing, partially because of his age. But who is doing the work? It is Joab, his tactician, his general, his nephew. Number three, we have King David. I've already mentioned him. He is anointed by God. He is the anointed king of Israel. Not only that, but in a special way, he is the king who would point to the king of kings. He is the David who would point to the son of David. He was anointed and chosen by God. But in recent weeks, recent chapters, he has been incredibly weakened. His life is going exactly in the opposite direction that you and I want our lives to go. We might experience suffering in our lives, whether someone has done things to us or whether we have sinned and blown it ourselves. That's David's situation. But his response to his own sin has weakened him massively. And it goes all the way back to chapter 11 in verse 1, where it happened late one afternoon. His life has not been the same. We have an incredibly weak and ineffective king. He is old, and Joab is concerned about who is going to inherit the throne. And now, if you've been here in recent weeks, you know all those things. I could have just skipped over that. But now we have the fourth character. We don't know her name. She is the wise woman of Tekoa. I've thought about this chapter a ton this week, including, God, why didn't you tell us her name? 
Here's my answer of thinking. Maybe some of you can help me if you have a better answer. Here's my thinking why we don't know her name. God wants us to remember her as the wise woman of Tekoa. (laughs) And so we don't have her name. We're going to see that she is intelligent. She has incredible rhetorical abilities, especially in personal conversation. I don't know if you've ever spent time with someone in one-on-one conversation, and you go away and you go, I've never really heard anyone speak that eloquently, that powerfully, that effectively to me. The wise woman of Tekoa is that kind of a woman. She wins the Oscar for best actress or actor in the book of First and Second Samuel. We're going to see her pretend. We're going to see her act in just a moment. I took longer on that than I wanted to. There's your introduction. Let's dive into our text of Scripture, 2 Samuel 14, beginning at verse 1. So Joab, the tactician, son of Zeruah, knew, my translation says, the king's heart longed for Absalom. I want to jump right away to the King James Version here in verse 1, which is a better translation. It says, now Joab, the son of Zeruah, perceived that the king's heart was toward Absalom. What verse 1 is saying is that Joab understands that the king is thinking a lot about his son. Any father would be. He hasn't seen him for several years. But his thoughts are not necessarily positive or affirmative. And many of our translations would lead us to think that as you read verse 1, including the one in front of me. Perhaps the most that can be said is that David is thinking constantly about Absalom. And it has become intuitively obvious for those of you that are not familiar with this chapter that it is very obvious that David is not thinking about bringing his son back to Israel. That's why we have chapter 14, that that is not really on the table for David. So the tactician, Joab, is at work. He knows he's thinking about him. So one more thing about verse 1. So the reader of verse 1 would be thinking, I think, primarily two thoughts about King David's thoughts about his son Absalom. Number one is that he should be executed. Equal justice under the law. They didn't have that phrase. That's our phrase. But they had that principle. And he should be executed for premeditated murder. That would be on David's heart. Of course, on David's heart would also be, I love my son. But it's been over three years, and Joab knows that David has no intention of bringing him back to Israel or Jerusalem. Okay, at this point, say, pick it up, Mike. Say, pick it up, Mike. We're in one verse of 20. We're going through all these verse by verse. Here we go, verse 2. So Joab sent someone to Tekoa and had a wise woman brought from there. I mean, she's a wise woman, and I think, deductively, so is Joab. The text doesn't describe him that way. He knows he can't do what needs to be done. He needs someone with a different skill set. Wise leaders know they can't do certain things. He knows he can't do what needs to be done. I need somebody who has a skill set I don't have. He gets a wise woman from Tekoa. He said to her, pretend you are in mourning. That was a big deal in the ancient world. 
The way you dress, the way you weep, the way you eat, what you do, life ends as normal and you begin mourning. Pretend you are in mourning. Dress in mourning clothes. Don't use any cosmetic lotions. Act like a woman who has spent many days grieving for the dead. Okay, I'm not an actor, but that is a difficult task right there. This is not, hey, I want you, you know, to play whatever, I don't know, Romeo and Juliet. Uh, th- th- this, is, this is a difficult act to pull off before the king of Israel. Verse 3, then go to the king and speak these words to him. And Joab put the words in her mouth. So he's not saying, hey, go and however you want to do this, I'm giving you liberty, go and do however you want to do it, accomplish this. He put the words in her mouth. In other words, here is precisely what I want you to say. One commentator writes this, as a whole, chapter 14 is concerned with Joab's successful attempt to bring Absalom back to Jerusalem from his self-imposed exile in Geshur, but also David's unwillingness to bring him back. So this is a both-and situation. Absalom fled, he's self-imposed in exile, but David is also not bringing him back. So put these words in her mouth, and he tells her what to do. Verse 4, when the woman from Tekoa went to the king, she fell with her face to the ground to pay him honor, and she said, help me, O king. So she gets there. She falls with her face to the ground. She does what anyone would do in the presence of the king, but she is acting as though she is a grieving woman. Verse 5, the king asked her, what is troubling you? She said, I am indeed a widow. My husband is dead. I, your servant, had two sons. They got into a fight with each other in the field, and no one was there to separate them. One struck the other and killed him. All right, Bible people, what, what story comes to mind there? Uh, Cain and Abel. So, so there's a whole variety of things, but she's telling this story as, this is what happened to my sons. Verse 7. Now the whole clan, the rest of her family, her extended family, has risen up against your servant. They say, hand over the one who struck his brother down so that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. Then we will get rid of the heir. So for the careful reader of 2 Samuel, there is an heir who is not in Israel. His name is Absalom. She also wants to have an heir. Now, this may not be a concern of you, so you have to think like an ancient Near Eastern person here. One of the very worst things for an ancient Near Eastern person is for your family to end. That there are no descendants in my family anymore. I mean, that is, that is like as bad as it gets almost. Crops and kids, that's what they were after. That's where there's life and vitality, where there's crops and there's kids. And to have no more kids in my family, she is desperate for this heir. But her dilemma is that her son killed her other son, and the law demands that he be killed. 
executed for justice. So she goes on, they would put out the only burning coal I have left. So imagine a woman weeping, looking miserable. She hasn't slept in days. She is acting, but she is such a good actor that he has no idea that she's acting. Her husband is gone. Her son is gone in her act. And she's asking the king for help. They would put out the only burning coal I have left, leaving my husband neither name nor descendant on the face of the earth. This is an Academy Award uh, woman who is intelligent as well. The law says the avenger of blood shall himself put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. This is what a good family would do in the ancient world under Torah. If the king, for some reason, didn't put, or the justice system didn't put this person to death, it was the family's responsibility to do this. Not in anger, not in vengeance, but as a part of justice for a society. So she is asking for this justice to not take place so that her family can continue in her Academy Award performance. The king falls for the Academy Award performance. Look at his response in verse 8. The king said to the woman, King David of Israel, go home and I will issue an order in your behalf. So here's my paraphrase of verse 8. Take two aspirin and I will call you in the morning. When the physician thinks that your level of problem is, is down here, and, and you think your problem is, is up here, the physician will say something like, take two aspirin, and I will call you in the morning. I think that's what David is doing here. He's heard her, he wants her to go away, and he's saying, I, I will issue an order on your behalf. But the woman from Tekoa said to him, My lord the king, let the blame rest on me and on my father's family, and let the king and his throne be without guilt. She's pushing him. She's saying, you you will be absolved. We will take, my person, my family, we will take on any guilt for any injustice by you protecting my son, by the way, who doesn't exist. My son who killed this other person. This is a a made-up story. You guys tracking with me? Verse 10. So he wants her gone, but the king replies. She's advancing her cause very successfully. If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he will not bother you again. So the physician hasn't said, I already told you, Take two aspirin and I'll call you tomorrow. The physician now says, okay, I will contact the specialist for you. I've ratcheted up my view of your condition. This is what David has done. If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me and he will not bother you again. He's listening to her and she's making progress in verse 10. The moral of her story was that the welfare of a whole family is more important than the proper punishment of an individual. This is what she is working 
in this made-up story that the king does not yet know is a made-up story. So, she said, then let the king invoke the Lord his God. This is a bold woman. Let the king invoke Yahweh, his God, to prevent the avenger of blood from adding to the destruction so that my son will not be destroyed. She's challenging the king of Israel to swear an oath. She's saying, I want an MRI before I leave your office, is what she's saying. And he's saying, let me go get the machine. As surely as the Lord lives, the king of Israel swearing an oath, not one hair of your son's head will fall to the ground. That is quite a statement. He swears an oath with Yahweh's name. It's a serious thing to do. Shows what an incredible actress she is. She says, not one hair of your son's head will fall to the ground. David makes this promise to this Academy Award winning wise woman of Tekoa. But she didn't stop there. Verse 12. Then the woman said, let your servant speak a word to my Lord the King. Has she already been doing that? She's inviting the king to affirm her to keep talking. Speak, he replies. The woman said, Why then have you devised a thing like this against the people of God? When the king says this, does he not convict himself? For the king has not brought back his banished Son. Whoa. What would you say here? Is she getting up in his face? Verse 14. Like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But God does not take away life. Instead, he devises ways so that a banished person may not remain estranged from him. There's theology there. She is teaching the king of Israel theology about God's heart, that he doesn't take away life. He shows mercy. He brings banished people back. He, does, he doesn't leave them estranged. Verse 15. And now I have come to say this to my lord the king, lots of reverence and respect, but incredibly skilled conversationalist. Because the people have made me afraid. Your servant thought, I will speak to the king. Perhaps he will do what his servant asks. Perhaps the king will agree to deliver his servant from the hand of the man who is trying to cut off both me and my son from the inheritance God gave us. She is saying, I was hoping you would do what you have just done. And now, verse 17, and now your servant says, may the word of my Lord the King bring me rest, for my Lord the King is like an angel of God in discerning good and evil. May the Lord your God be with you. She speaks a word of blessing on him, heaps massive praise upon him. But somewhere, I think it's right at this moment, 
the king realizes that there's something else going on here. I think it's at this moment. So one of the questions that a careful reader of 2 Samuel 14 is going to ask is, where is the moment that he realizes she's an Academy Award-winning actress? He realizes it. I think it's right here. It could be somewhere else. So you can help me out later if it's another place. I think it's right here because of the cues in the text. We don't have any cues in the text that he's, that he's on to what she's doing until verse 18. Verse 18, the king says to the woman, do not keep from me the answer to what I'm going to ask you. So that's the first clue to the reader that he knows she's acting. Let my lord, the king, speak, <laughs> the woman said. This is quite a woman. Um, I don't know, we don't live in a kingdom. None of us have been into the president's office or a king's office in his palace. But let's just say it's not real common to say in the ancient world for a woman, let my lord the king speak. The king asked, isn't the hand of Joab with you in all this? <laughs> so we have a kind of an implicit cue in verse 18, and now it's explicit. Joab, the tactician, is at work. You're an Academy Award-winning actress. I think that's what the king is thinking. So the woman answered, As surely as you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right or the left from anything my lord the king says. Yes, it was your servant Joab who instructed me to do this and who put all these words into the mouth of your servant. In other words, the very words I'm using are the words that he demanded that I use and I just use them. Your servant Joab did this to change the present situation. That's a key phrase in interpreting 2 Samuel 14. It lets the reader know that David had no intention of bringing Absalom back, the heir to the throne. My Lord has wisdom like that of an angel of God. He knows everything that happens in the land. Okay, that's all we have time for text-wise today. We're going to part two next week. The woman changes David's mind, and he does come back, Joab, to the land. The king calls him back. We'll look at that next week. So now, what do we do with this? Okay? Uh, we, we, we've studied this text. We have looked at this text. There are many possible applications for you and me as believers in 2023 out of this text. They're not real clear immediately right away, right? Uh, but let me give you two of them. One of the things we want to do when we read the Old Testament is connect it to the New Testament. We want to read it in the shadow of the cross. And so one of the main things that I see that connects this passage with the gospel or with the New Testament is this phrase in verse uh, 11. At the end of verse 11, not one hair of your son's head will fall to the ground. I will protect him. Does that ring any bells from anybody? We hear that in the New Testament? You're, you, say yes if you have heard this in the New Testament. Yes. yes, we've heard this in the New Testament. Protection. The king, David the king, is saying when he does not yet know this is a story, 
I will protect your son. The reader of First and Second Samuel, to what degree does the reader have confidence that David is capable of protecting a son at this phase of his life? I want to suggest the reader has almost zero confidence. David has intentionally murdered one of his most faithful men. In the process of murdering that man, he killed several other soldiers as collateral damage. He is not concerned about the transition of power and authority. He is too old, whether it's age or whether it's spiritual weakness, he cannot manage the kingdom. So the reader of 2 Samuel, when it hears David promising not one hair of your son's head will fall to the ground, I want to suggest when we link that to the several places we see that same sort of phrase in the New Testament, that the, the, re, the believer in 2023 reading this text realizes we need someone much greater than King David to protect our children or ourselves. And this phrase is picked up in the New Testament a couple times. Let's look at one of them briefly. Matthew chapter 10. The context here is Jesus sending out the 12, sending out the disciples. And he says, don't be afraid of them. Who is the them? Those who will not like you. It's the world, the persecutors. Don't be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, have reverence and awe for God. But don't worry about those who are going to oppose your ministry. This is what he's saying to his disciples. And then he goes on and says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. There's a, a little bit of a cultural background here you, you may need. Maybe you already have this. So I don't know if you know that in the ancient world, people, poor people, ate sparrows. Just like today, there might be poor people, maybe even in the foothills, there are probably poor people who eat squirrels or raccoons or roadkill. In the ancient world, they ate sparrows. Jesus is saying, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. He cares about sparrows, church. That's what he's saying. Then he goes on and says, and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. Original context, historical context, don't be afraid. Now, what's the reality? 11 out of 12 of the disciples are killed for the sake of the gospel. And one is put in exile on Patmos. He's saying to them, don't be afraid. Is he talking about physical protection? Say no. Is he talking about physical protection? They're all going to die except for John. He's saying, this is such good news, Christian, in 2023 in the foothills, that you could be facing your own murder, and I've got you. You, you are worth more than many sparrows. How worthy am I, 
a Christian in 2023. The number of my hairs are numbered. What is he saying there? Well, we number things. You know how many cars you have. You, you, you know how many phones you have with you today. You know how many children you have. You, you, you number things. You don't know. Maybe one or two of you here, the answer is zero. But for most of us, you don't know how many hairs are on your head. You don't number them. God knows you better than you know you. He numbers the hairs on your head. They're all going to face persecution, 11 out of 12 death. And you don't need to be afraid. I saw a video this week of Eliana, this woman in this picture, and Halil Basir. They are Christians in the West Bank. He's 77, she's 69. They were picking olives, right, where this picture was taken. This is a few days ago, they're picking olives. Men who are not Christians come and begin beating in front of her 77-year-old husband. She says to these men, why are you beating my husband? Christian couple. They then break her arm. These are young men. Jesus is saying, I know the number of hairs on your head. He's not saying, I will keep you from being beaten. He's not saying to the Christians in the foothills that he's going to keep you from trials and tribulations. In fact, he says the opposite. He says, if you are going to enter the kingdom of God, you are going to go through many trials and tribulations, but you can do so without fear. This is a good God. This is a good king. This is a king that is so far beyond the king of Israel, King David. A greater David is needed to protect you and to protect me. Whether our fears, I, I don't think any of us here are going to be beaten in our lives unless we move to a different part of the, the world for being a Christian. But we have other kinds of sorrows and grief that are real and tangible and, and, and there. And Jesus says you do not need to fear. This is one of the ways a Christian would read 2 Samuel 14 is to look at what David said to this woman, thinking she was a grieving widow. Not one hair of your son's head will fall to the ground. I'll let your family line continue. He's not able or qualified, very likely at this point, to carry that out. But Jesus is. There's a saying in church history, I don't think Matthew Henry came up with it, but it's, shall some of them lose their heads and yet not lose a hair? It's a saying that means, I understand what Jesus is saying about counting the hairs on our head. One greater than David is available to protect you, to comfort you, and you can live 
without fear. Whether you are in a situation like this, which unless you live in Israel or Gaza or the West Bank or other places in the Middle East or North Africa, you're probably not going to experience. Whether you are experiencing something like that or whether you're experiencing the kind of pain and suffering that very rarely, to be honest, has to do with us being Christians, if we're just honest. The kind of trials and sufferings of, of the people over the last couple of decades that I've talked to who are Christians, it, it very rarely, sometimes does, but it rarely, maybe get rid of the word very, it rarely has to do with the gospel, of being unashamed of the gospel. Occasionally it does. I'm more or less out of time. One other point of application. What I'm doing in this sermon is we've gone at the text and then we've tried to apply the text. A greater David is needed to protect you is one way to apply this text. Another way to apply this text is to see something that sounds very much like a theological description of the gospel in this passage, and that is back to 2 Samuel, the end of verse 14. He devises ways. This wise woman of Tekoa is describing ways that God, um, let me just read it. God does not take away life. Instead, he devises ways so that a banished person may not remain estranged from him. That is right theology. God goes after people and forgives them who have been banished. People like David. Remember a few weeks ago, the most beautiful words were said to David, you are forgiven. Oh, oh my gosh. I was unfaithful to my wife. I I, I, I was with someone whom I love and who's devoted to me with, with his wife. I, I, I tried to cover it up. I had him killed. Other people got killed as collateral damage. And God says to David, you are forgiven. That is a gracious and merciful God. The wise woman of Tekoa has a core of God's right theology here when she says this to King David. He brings estranged people back. We, living this side of the cross, 2,000 years this side of the cross, know that he does this through Jesus and through the gospel. Let's close with this. 1 Corinthians 15. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That category is huge, that the New Testament identifies certain things as of first importance. One of those things, in addition to the doctrine of the Trinity, would be the gospel It's of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is how banished people go from being estranged to being joyful and confident and home and at peace. David, we're going to learn, is not able to do that with his son, Absalom. David wasn't able to do that with his son, Amnon. David wasn't able to protect the men in his army who died as he was going after Uriah. We need a greater king. And the good news is we have that king. And he loves you. And if you're there today, and this will be the last thing I say. So I can imagine many of you potentially saying, I don't feel the kind of confidence in King Jesus that you're describing. That he knows the number of hairs on my head and that I can live without fear. 
So I understand the reality that you might feel that way. And so what I want to say is that that is true, but it is not necessarily easy to get to that place where you can live without fear no matter what has happened in your life, whether something terrible has been done to you or whether you have done terrible things. Either way, you can live with durable joy and without fear. Our God really knows you better than you know yourself, and he loves you. And through a relationship with him, you can live without fear. That was not true under the old covenant by looking to King David. But it is true in the new covenant, looking to the son of David, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So if you need help, there are many people here who could help you how to get to that place through various means of grace. But I've said more than I have time to say. So let's bow our heads and pray together. Lord, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you especially for the new covenant because there is no man, no woman who is sufficient to help us live lives without fear other than you, God. And so I pray through ordinary means of grace, through prayer, through the scriptures, through fellowship, through the Lord's Supper, through the the fellowship and communion of saints, that everyone here today would find the kind of confidence in King Jesus that no matter what I've done or what has been done to me, that I can live without fear. Help us to live that way, God. And we thank you that you want us to live that way and you can enable us to live that way. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.